In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in the ark, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up the lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Erica. Uh, Good morning. Uh, We continue this morning in a series that we've been doing for a number of months now, and will continue to do probably throughout the rest of 2014, on the Old Testament story. So if you've not been able to be here with us, uh, you know, i got to catch you up, or I'm not going to really try to catch you up, just kind of kind of jump into the middle of the story. We're looking now, uh, the nation of Israel has been rescued from slavery in Egypt, as we're told in this book of Exodus, and God is bringing them towards the promised land, but for the time being, they're wandering around in the wilderness, in the desert. And I'm coming this morning to you out of a three-week stretch where uh, I feel like I've been in the desert. I don't know if anybody else is there. Yeah, I got a couple nods. Where I feel like life has just run me over. And I've struggled to not be overwhelmed by my own sin and the sin of other people. And it's just a fight not to get so discouraged that you want to give up. And that is, that is the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. Nobody ever said 400 years in the desert would be easy. It's hard. And so life is hard, and the only way you can make it through is to know that God is good, that he's with you, that he's working things uh, to do good to you and the people that you love, and to accomplish and fulfill his purposes in the world. And it's really a tension that was set up last week, if you remember what we, what we looked at last week. After the golden calf, Moses uh, goes up to the Lord, and the Lord says this to him in chapter 33. He says, go on, I'm sending you to the promised land. Go on over into the land that I promised to Abraham so many centuries ago, but I'm not going with you because if I go one step further with you, I'm going to hurt somebody, basically is what he says. I'm so frustrated with you people that if I keep going with you, I'll kill you before we get there. And Moses says, to paraphrase, Lord, that won't do. If you don't go with us, don't send us. 
And the spiritual lesson of that story, which carries over into what we want to talk about this morning, is this, is that we can't do life without God's presence and power at work in us. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said that he, God, is the fuel that we are designed to burn, just like a car runs on gas, that we are a flower and he is the sun and the rain. And the Bible says, uses many different images. He's the bread of life. He's living water. He is, his spirit, excuse me, is the breath of life. And whatever image or metaphor you choose from the Bible to try to describe or explain this, the Bible's helping us understand that we can't do life without him. We may try, but we can't. We're malnourished without him. We don't have life within us without him. And Moses knew that. He knew that if God did not go with them, if he sent them up without his presence, he might as well go ahead and kill them in the desert. They needed God's presence and his power They needed his smile. They needed access to him. They needed him to go with them. And so the struggle, like I said, when you're in a wilderness place, is to believe that even in that hard place, uh, that God is there with you. And that's the function of what we come to find here in chapter 40, where Moses is given the instructions to build the tabernacle of the tent of meeting there, 40 verse 1. Almost one-third of this entire book that we've been in now for probably 10 weeks or so, one-third is about either the construction or the furnishings or the regulations regarding the tabernacle or God's tent. It was a tent, God's dwelling place right in the middle of Israel's camp. So 13 chapters Moses takes to describe this. Israel's wandering through the wilderness. Remember, they're living in tents, and God says to Moses, build me a tent so that I can live in a tent right next, actually right in the middle of my people. So the tabernacle is the symbol of God's presence at the very center of the camp. And that's why it's so important. It's something very tangible, something unmistakable, even sensory. So look at the very bottom of the passage that Erica read, verse 34. The cloud, we're told, covered the tent of meeting. The glory, which is the presence of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. And then down in verse 38, for... The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. And this language should be familiar to us by now. This cloud, the cloud and the fire are the emblems of God's glory presence, which has been leading the people from the time they left Egypt and is now coming. The cloud and the glory that was on Mount Sinai as they gathered around the mountain is now coming down off of the mountain and filling this tent. That Moses has built for the Lord to dwell in. God is coming into his dwelling place to be among his people. That's what this story is all about. So here's what I want you to, I want to just look for a few minutes together this morning at this, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting that Moses built, built. And I want you to see three things. I want you to see, I really think it calls us to three things this morning. It tells us about the story of grace. That's the first point. Secondly, It helps us develop our own liturgies of grace, thirdly, so that we can become a people of grace. Okay, so those are the three points this morning. The tabernacle is really, the the purpose of it is to tell us and remind us of the story of grace so that we might develop personal and corporate liturgies of grace. I'll explain what I mean by that. So that ultimately, at the end of the day, we can become people of grace. Okay, so let's first, just the story of grace then. Let's start there. And the way the tabernacle does this or the way it does its work, you might say, is to remind Israel of their story. And it does this in a number of ways. I think we have a picture. Do we have, and we're high, listen, we are high tech this morning. Look at that. 
That is taken out of a book that I was reading earlier this morning with a photo, and boom, there it is. I mean, it's like something else. Be impressed. And so this is, a, this is a picture of the layout of the tabernacle. You'll see it really is split into three areas. There's the courtyard, which, which you can see the dimensions of the courtyard, leading into the inner part of the tent itself, which was called the holy place. And then ultimately, which was 20 by 10, and then ultimately leading into what's called the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones, right? And they lift the lid off and everybody's faces melt and all that kind of stuff, and it's really cool. The Ark of the Covenant, which was God's footstool, and I'm not, not going to deal with all of the imagery this morning for lack of time. And you'll see that in these different parts of the tabernacle, there were different, different um, instruments and for, actually it's called furniture in the Bible. So you walk in the courtyard and you come to the bronze altar and that's where the sacrifices would have been made. And anybody could come in, any Israelite could come into the courtyard area. And then just beyond the bronze altar, there's the laver or the, the, the place of the basin where the water was so that the priests preparing to go into the holy place could wash their hands. And then beyond that, as the priests would go into the holy place, you have the lampstand on one side and the table with the bread of the presence on the other side, uh, and, and then the altar of incense about on the back wall, and then obviously a curtain separating those two things, and then only the high priest and only one time a year could pass into the most holy place, which is where the ark was, which was said to be the footstool of God's throne, where the, 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 the glory, the cloud, and the fire, and the presence of God dwelled. And if you look carefully, it's very interesting in the way that, that this is laid out and exactly all that's... I mean, a lot of, you read this stuff and you think, what does that have to do with anything? But there's something very significant going on here. And Vern Poitras, professor of theology at... Uh, New Testament theology at Westminster Seminary, points out there's a sequence... Keep, just keep that up if you would, Ethan. Uh, there's a sequence which the priests followed that mirrored the story of Israel's salvation from Egypt. So the priest would first come into the... The, you know, the courtyard, and he would come to the bronze altar where the sacrifices for sins were made. He would then pass on to the basin to wash and to cleanse himself, then continue into the holy place, which contained the bread of presence, and then, and only the high priest, go on into the holy of holies where the ark of God's presence was, which contained in it, we were told, the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, that God gave to them at Sinai. And if you think about the story we've been telling, Israel was first delivered through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, symbolized by the altar. They then passed through the Red Sea, which the scripture says was a sort of ceremonial washing or even a baptism, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, which is there symbolized by the basin or the laver. They would go on, they went on uh, through the Red Sea into the wilderness where God fed them with manna from heaven, symbolized by the bread of the presence there in the holy place, And then finally came to Mount Sinai where only Moses went up to God to receive the law symbolized by the ark and the Holy of Holies. Isn't that cool? That was something new I learned. See, even the pastor learned stuff. So there's something very significant about what is going on in the construction even of this tabernacle. There's a story that's being told. And just like every great story, this story centers around a sort of crisis. And the crisis is this. See, every story, what makes a great story is there's a crisis and then the story has to resolve the crisis. And it's true of this story too. And in this story, the crisis goes something like this. We were made to dwell with God. 
and enjoy the abundance of his loving presence and provision. And the first man and the first woman walked and talked with God, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, of course, things went horribly wrong. They sinned, God cursed them, and then he kicked them out of the garden that he had created for them to live in. And all that is happening, all the furnishings and all the different parts of this tabernacle are there to retell not only Israel's salvation story out of Egypt, but the greater story of what God is doing in the world. So, for example, you have the lampstand. You see in verse 4 of our passage, and it's there on the left side of the holy place there. And um, the lampstand, we're told in chapter 37, was fashioned in the shape of a tree with branches and buds and blossoms and almond flowers as a representation and reminder of the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life that was there and the flourishing and the abundance that we were created for to live in God's immediate presence. So every time a priest would walk in, he would be reminded of where he came from and ultimately all that had been lost. Because, of course, then as a counterbalance, you have the architecture of the courtyard where any Israelite could go. Then the most holy place where only the priests were allowed. And the, and the, excuse me, the holy place. And then the most holy place where only the high priest was allowed and only one time a year. And so very practically, not only could an Israelite not go into where God's presence was, he was separated by two rooms. He couldn't, he couldn't even get into the holy place, which was still short of the most holy place. And so Vern Poitras, again, he notes that there's more than one layer separating Israel from the inner room to emphasize what he called the remoteness of God's presence. Add to that the curtain. Do you see, do you see where the holy place and the most holy? The curtains that separated these various parts of the tabernacle, we're told in other places in Exodus, were, were woven, woven with... The, the, the figure of cherubim woven into these very thick curtains. And of course, that would bring to mind uh, cherubim guarding the way to God. And, and immediately, you would think of Genesis chapter 3, where after the first man and the first woman sin, they are exiled from the garden of God. And do you remember what God does? He posts cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to keep them from getting back in. And that's the crisis. We need God, but we've lost him. We're made to walk and talk with him, but we can't get near him. We need his smile, but he's hidden from us. That's what this tent of meeting is trying to tell us. And it's what C.S. Lewis said, what he meant when he said that the problem with our lives is that we feel like we're on the wrong side of a door and we long to get back in. So insightful, I think. He said the problem is that we feel like we're on the outside of a door we want to get, and all we can think about is getting back in. And if you think about it for a minute, that's a great metaphor for what's wrong with our lives. It's the reason we are driven to succeed, right? If I do well, then maybe I can open the door and get back in. It's the reason we get our feelings hurt so easily if it looks like everybody else is having fun and we're not, or if everybody else is being celebrated and we're not, or if everybody else has friends and we don't. It's a source of self-pity and Loneliness, it's what makes community so hard, right? The sense of we're on the outside and we need to get in, it's what makes living in community so hard because it's easy to approach a group of friends. And it's easy to approach a church thinking, well, they're all in and I'm on the outside, when in reality, psychologically and existentially, can I, can I give you a secret? Everybody's on the outside. Every person in the group feels like an outsider and everybody's trying to get on the inside. So one of the things is, uh, you know, 
for you to for you to be for you to be an insider, then there have to be outsiders. And so this is the reason we gossip and why we tear people down with our words and we trying to keep them outside and to keep me in. Do you see? Sin has separated us from God, and that's the crisis in our lives. It ruins everything. It makes us act like outsiders. And so the tabernacle, which you see there, is a reminder of this spiritual truth. We need God, but we've lost him. We were made for communion with him, but we're on the outside looking in. It was designed to bring the people to the place of crisis, to feel and to name this problem so they can embrace the solution. But what is the solution? Now, as Americans, I I, I was thinking about this this morning. We have something built into us, Westerners, but particularly Americans, that when we come to a door that is locked, what do we do? We figure out how to unlock it, don't we? The president says, this generation is going to go to the moon. What do we do? We build rockets. And so part of what's built into us is when we come to a door that's locked, the solution is very easy. We find a way to unlock it. And if that doesn't work, then we lower our shoulder and we bulldoze our way in. And so for most Americans and Westerners in general, I think the solution to the problem that I'm describing comes from me. I need God. I've lost him. I'm going to scratch and claw my way back. I'll be good. I'll change my life. I'll start going to church, whatever it might be. And we imagine that the way back is through some sort of moral reformation or commitment on our part. But the lessons we learn from the tabernacle tell us this, undeniably, that won't work. Nearly all the commentators look at this and they say, this should help, this should remind you of Sinai. And if you remember in Exodus chapter 19, a couple of weeks ago, When the people come to Sinai, God says, here's a limit, and nobody can come up on the mountain past this limit. And if you do, you'll die. It's like a force field, right? You walk through it, you just disintegrate, if you want a picture. So God's saying there at Sinai, and he's saying here, you can't come up. You can't come near. If you try to come near to me, if you try to come up on the mountain, you'll be consumed. And so you see, this is the problem. The door, we're we're on the wrong side of the door. And we're, we're there and we're trying to open it, but the problem that we're told here is that the door that we're on the wrong side of that we're trying to get in is a door that can only be opened from the inside. And that's why the story the tabernacle, tabernacle is telling is ultimately a story of grace. We can't come near to God, so he must come near to us. We can't tear through the curtain to get to him. He must tear it down to get to us. We can't come up on the mountain To him, he must come down. And so the solution isn't my good works. It isn't my religious commitments. It isn't how well my kids turn out. It isn't my performance in any way. The solution is God's work of grace to save me. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, Jonathan stole my thunder just a little bit. We're told that the word of God, who was with God from the beginning, became flesh and came to dwell with us. But the word... The word to describe Jesus Christ, who though he was God, came down to dwell with us. That word is a very unique Greek word. And all of the commentators and the theologians, without exception really, point out that it really means that verse in chapter 1. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. He is God coming to his people. The people lived in tents, so God would live in a tent. And this is the principle of the incarnation, what the church calls the incarnation. God did not keep his distance. He came near. He came down. He moved into the neighborhood, as the message says, to be near to us. And as he hung upon the cross, at his dying breath, we're told that the curtain of separation in the temple, which was ultimately the permanent, the permanent tabernacle, that temple uh, curtain of separation, we're told, 
was ripped from the top to the bottom. From the top to the bottom. And that's just another way of saying that when Jesus died upon the cross, God opened the door from the inside. God came in Jesus Christ to do for us what we could have never done. We could not go up, so he came down. And here's what that means. To be a Christian means you stand at the door. Do you know this verse in Revelation? I could sing the behold, behold. Anyway, we won't do that. I stand at the door and knock, knock, knock. Right? The image is you stand at the door and you knock. If you've ever been locked out, you know that can be a painful experience. And that's the Bible, the, the, the image the Bible uses. You don't try to pick the lock and sneak in. You don't try to bust the door down with sheer strength. You know, that won't work. You stand at the door and you knock. And that is a picture of faith. To put your faith in Jesus means you stop trying to get back in. And you rest your hope in the fact that in Jesus, the door is open to you. If your faith is in Jesus, you're an insider, not an outsider. And so the tabernacle is a symbol of God's presence and power. It it reminds us of the story of grace. And it works to make... God's presence real to Israel by reminding them of the story they belong to, the story of grace. It works by pointing those who came into the tabernacle to the tabernacle among us. Jesus, who came to tabernacle among us and to make communion with God possible through the Spirit in a way the Israelites could have never even imagined. But there's a second thing, and and I'm going to be much shorter from this point on. The second thing we learn is that the way we immerse ourselves in the story of grace is through what I'm going to call liturgies of grace, okay? And that's a strange word, so let me explain. The word liturgy refers to a form or shape of worship, but I'm going to use the word more broadly to, to describe stories, symbols, practices, images, both corporate and individual, that help shape us as a people who belong to the story of grace. And this was the function of all of the specifications, right? The furniture, the symbols, like the stone... In the ark were the stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain and a little jar of manna to remind them always of what God had done for them in the wilderness. And it was all there. So all of these things and what Hebrews calls the regulations for worship, they all conveyed meaning. As strange as unfamiliar as it might sound to us, to evangelicals particularly, space, symbols, stories, liturgies really matter. Now, let me give you an illustration. Our hearts are naturally calibrated to salvation by works, not grace. And so whether you're religious or irreligious, to be a Christian, you have to unlearn a certain way of doing life and to relearn grace. Because this idea of works righteousness is so ingrained in your thinking that you have to recalibrate your heart to think differently. And so there's something very practical about the way you do that. It's much like learning something new in school. Right? How does a child learn her times tables? Well, if she was in Mrs. Savant's class, she would do 100 of them every single day. Right? Over and over again. She has to do them every day, over and over and over again, until they're ingrained in her memory and she can do them without counting on her fingers. They become a reflex, and only then can that, can that student move on to more complex math. And that's a liturgy. Liturgies are practices, they're stories, symbols that you go back to over and over again to unlearn works righteousness in this case and to learn grace. They're spiritual times tables that you repeat again and again until your heart starts to catch on. So for example, there are all kinds of corporate liturgies. There's something about our worship service uh, that I will admit might seem very 
ordinary and unimaginative. We do the same thing every week. Martin Luther's people asked him, why do you preach the gospel every week? He said, because every week you come in here looking like a people who don't believe it, and so I have to tell it to you again. And we follow the same liturgy, call to worship, prayer of adoration and confession of sin, then an assurance of pardon, a time of greeting, etc. That's on purpose. We're learning spiritual times tables. We're intentionally recalibrating our hearts to certain spiritual truths, that we're sinners who need mercy, that Jesus is the only Savior, and that in him we can find forgiveness and be reconciled to God, and that is the basis of our relationship with one another as a community of faith. Does that make sense? We also have art and symbols, though American evangelicalism is very suspicious of these things. But we have powerful symbols in the sacraments, in the water of baptism, which would have been similar to the waters in the basin at the entrance of the tabernacle we see there. And the bread and the cup of communion, similar to the bread of presence on the table in the holy place. These are not coincidences, they are analogous. Then and now, these kinds of corporate liturgies and symbols and images and stories have spiritual power. They recalibrate our hearts to grace. And it's why corporate worship is so important. There are cultural liturgies of all kinds. So which story do you belong to? Worship re-stories us weekly. Which is why all I can say to you is don't neglect the means of grace. Don't neglect the gathering of yourself in worship to be restoried after grace. It's very important. But also one of the things I would challenge you to do, at the risk of being made fun of, I'm going to go ahead with this anyways, to begin to develop what Ashley calls a personal arsenal of grace, a collection of stories and symbols and scripture passages that you put on the wall everywhere, whatever it might be, or physical reminders of the story of grace, that we don't claw our way to God, but that he has come down, that we aren't spiritual superheroes. We are weak and broken and in need of grace. So, for example, from my own life, you may not know this, but it's a huge temptation for pastors to preach to save their souls. Did you know that about pastors? We preach to save our souls. And by that I mean to feel good about yourself after a good sermon and to feel bad about yourself after a bad sermon. And so one of the things that I do every time I preach is I wear a watch. Actually, it it's currently needs to be fixed, but I wear a watch that my grandfather gave me. It's one of the most precious things that I own. To remind me that when I stand here, I'm standing on the shoulders of people who came before me, and whatever I am, I am because of their love and sacrifice. I also wear a ring that a friend of mine gave me, uh, and it has the Hebrew letters on it that say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, from the Song of Solomon, just to remind myself that God loves me no matter how the sermon goes. I go into the pulpit righteous. I don't come out of the pulpit righteous. And both Ashley and I, she's really helped me with this, have other symbols. One of the things I found, I haven't told you, I found one, so I have one now too, so I'm really excited. We, we uh, have these little, little jars, these, I don't know what you would call them, like potion jars, because of a story that we read to our kids called The Wizard of Wallaby Wallow. Anybody know this story? It's marvelous. It's a story about a mouse who wants to be anything but a mouse, and because it's hard not to think, uh, that, it's hard not to think that you should be something different than you are. Anybody else? Okay, I'm the only one. That's encouraging. Thank you. (laughs) So the mouse goes to a wizard who has potions that will change him into any other kind of animal that he might want to be. The problem is the labels are all mixed up, so it's impossible to know what he'll be changed into. So the mouse takes home this potion, 
and begins to imagine, well, if I become an elephant, you know, that'll be great. But then, well, there's this, or if I, be, you know, and he begins to ma- imagine all these things. And in the end, he decides that it's probably good just to be who he is. And it's the struggle of my life. So it's, I have it sitting there on my desk. It's sitting on the vanity at home because we need images like this. For me, one of the big things is I, stories. Stories are a really helpful part of, of doing this uh, for me. So when I'm feeling particularly vulnerable, I, I tend to go to my stories. And so I'll, I have movies and I'll pop them in. Or when I'm lonely, for example, I'll go to YouTube or find the movie and find the scene in the last Harry Potter movie where Harry has learned that the only way to defeat Voldemort is that he must die. And he decides to sacrifice himself, save his friends. And on his march to his death, he runs across his two friends. And as they begin to put the pieces together, Hermione runs over to him and and hugs him in this moment. And she says, I'll go with you. And it's powerful for me because I live with such a deep longing for that. And it's a scene that reminds me that in Jesus I have a friend that sticks closer than any brother and he promises never to leave me or forsake me. And when I feel weak, I go to the scene at the end of the Return of the King where Aragorn and the mighty men of Gondor bow to the four little hobbits. And it reminds me that God's strength is for those who are weak and that he works through weakness. And when I've lost the sense of Jesus' love for me, I go to the scene at the end of Braveheart where they wheel I can make this stuff up, guys. William Wallace into the courtyard on a cart with his arms outstretched upon a cross, beaten and tortured and bruised with his dying breath crying out, freedom, and it makes the cross more real to my heart. See, constantly trying to immerse myself in practices, symbols, stories. That's why I'm committed to reading the Bible daily in CBR, community Bible reading. It's why community group is so important to me. It's why corporate worship is a non-negotiable. I need liturgies of grace to drill the truth of the gospel into my heart. And can I be a friend to you and say you need them too? Without them, we're just too forgetful. And lastly, so as we immerse ourselves in the stories of grace, through corporate and personal liturgies of grace, I think the ultimate promise of this passage is that we will become a people of grace. And that's the last thing, very quickly. You see, the tabernacle is not only a symbol and type of Jesus Christ, it is also a symbol and type for the church. So, for example, you have Paul saying in his letter to the Corinthians that the church is God's temple, God's tabernacle, because through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in our corporate body. And the metaphor Paul uses for his ministry is that he's building the church to be a place, to be a a, um, a house or a structure where God can dwell, and it calls up all of the imagery from the Exodus and the construction of the tabernacle. We are God's dwelling place, and if that's true, then we should learn something about the kind of people that we should be from the passages about the tabernacle in the Bible, and I think we do. And there are three things, and I just am going to basically bullet point them for you this morning because I'm out of time. But I'm drawing from multiple sources and from inference, not specifically, but from Exodus 40, but here are the three things that I think, the three attributes, the three, you know, whatever you, qualities that would begin to be developed in us to be, make us a people of grace. What we learn here about the tabernacle would make us holy, it would make us hopeful, and it would make us humble. You see, if the story of grace is your story, and if you're immersing yourself in the story of grace through liturgies of grace, then like the rest of the church, you'll be becoming more and more hopeful, holy, and humble. Now let me make just a few comments. What do I mean by holy? See, if you were to pick one word to describe the tabernacle, it would be this word holy. Though it doesn't appear here in chapter 40, 
the main parts of the structure, you'll see there, the main parts of the structure are called the holy place and the most holy place. The furniture in the tabernacle is called holy. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy. You are that temple. So of course, this idea of we would become a holy people and holiness means to be set apart or different. So the dominant, let me just, the dominant narrative of our culture is increasingly Something like the Darwinian survival of the fittest. We believe as a people, as an American people, that the first are first and the last are last. That's why we love to crush the rest of the world in the Olympics. Right? Just to prove who's first. But what's interesting is this affects us and drives our decision makings more and more and more than we might readily admit. But the gospel narrative, see, the gospel narrative in the scripture is completely different. The gospel narrative is, is the first are not first, the first are last. And the last are not last, the last are first. That the way of life is through death. That the way to power and victory is through weakness and self-sacrifice, grace. And what it means to be holy then is that you belong to the gospel story, which is at odds with mainstream culture, so your life takes a very different shape. You'll have different goals, different priorities, different values. You'll have a whole different view of the world. Think about this. Think about, just think about this just one thing. How do you respond to an offense? An American belongs to a story that leads him to typically respond to an offense, to a sin against him, with revenge. A Christian belongs to a story that leads him to respond with forgiveness. So right there, see, being a Christian puts you out of step with the rest of the culture because we belong to a different story, the story of grace. God has shown us grace, and so we show grace even to our enemies. Not to say there's not truth, but just sit with that. And that's what makes us holy. So the first thing is the people of grace are holy. They're different because they belong to a different story. But let me go on and describe the shape of that holiness, that people of grace are this strange mix of the two things that seem so often to be at odds. They are on the one hand hopeful, but at the same time humble. And I'm out of time. We've talked about this before, but by hopeful I mean... That if your faith is in Jesus, then unlike the worshipers in the tabernacle who were left after all of their sacrifices, after all of their time and care, still on the outside, but according to Hebrews, they were left with a deep abiding sense of condemnation. But if your faith is in Jesus, and the promise of the gospel for you this morning is that the door has been opened, you're not on the outside, you're on the inside. And if you believe that, then that can make you a person who is not overly sensitive doesn't respond negatively to criticism, isn't easily hurt and offended. If you know God is with you and you have a smile, it will fill your heart with confidence and joy so that you'll be able to push through when other people hurt you and you can still move towards them in love just as God has moved towards you. But at the same time, hopeful, but at the same time, the confidence that that, that, that that word describes doesn't become self-confidence so that your life will be com- completely empty at the same time of any boasting or air of superiority or spiritual sophistication. You'll be humble because you may be inside. But the door was open from the inside. Nothing you did got you there. And so you see, immersing ourselves in the story of grace through corporate and personal liturgies of grace make us a people of grace. And the mark 
of grace. The mark of that people of grace is just what I'm trying to describe, a holy, hopeful humility. Man, I hope God does that in our hearts. So let's pray that he'll do that. Let's pray. Father, would you work in us in such a way that you produce that very thing? Lord Jesus, that you are the word made flesh who came to tabernacle among us. And in you, our hearts can be filled with hope and confidence that the Father does love us, that he has covenanted with us, that he indeed smiles down upon us, but not because of anything that we have done to earn uh, his smile, but solely because of the work of, of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And so, produce in us a desire for holiness, and may that holiness take the shape of what we see there, of hopefulness and humility that is beautiful, that causes the city we live in to ask the reason for our hope and to be awed by our humility that we might bear fruit that will glorify and honor you. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. And, uh, this benediction is a liturgy of grace. I remember the first time years ago that I went to a church that did a benediction, I wept. I really did. I wept because I realized, see, that what the promise of this benediction is, is you don't go out into the world to try to earn God's smile. You go out into the world with God's smile. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and your righteousness and turned to him, if you've come to the door and you've knocked and he's opened it to you, then the promise of the benediction is that the Father goes with you, that you have his face, and so you can be confident of that and now go out into the mission that he calls you to. So receive the benediction uh, and, and, and allow it to drive home the truths that we've talked about this morning to your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to do that as I speak these words over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Amen.